This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on the show, we have a lawyer, Paul Bird, from Little Rock, Arkansas. Paul is a specialist on how you can talk to conservative jurors, and all of us around the country have to talk to conservative jurors, whether you're in red state America or blue state America, there always are going to be some conservatives on your panel. Uh... I listened to Paul give a talk at the AAJ conference in Denver and thought, man, I'd like to learn more about that. You know, what is it that liberals and conservatives, how do they think differently? What are the common values that we have that we can tap into uh, to communicate our clients' stories and to get justice from jurors on the conservative side of the spectrum? Paul has a lot of great ideas, and I hope they're helpful to you. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have uh, lawyer Paul Bird from Little Rock, Arkansas. Paul, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Michael. Wonderful, Paul. You've got uh, you've been talking all over the country. You've done a lot of work on talking to conservative jurors. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Well, why do we need to care about you know talking to conservative jurors? Can't people just strike all the conservatives off their panels and just have liberal jurors? Uh, well, first of all, I don't know that that's possible, and uh, even if it's uh, not possible, it may not be preferential. Sometimes a and conservative I was, I, juror. And I was being sarcastic ahead. about that. I, I live in Texas. I don't, I don't think I could have twelve people if I didn't have any conservatives <laughs> on my panel. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Well, I'm I, I'm in Arkansas, and uh, I've I've gone all around the country talking to trial lawyers, and I find that they all have these problems. Uh, even if you uh, went to uh, Boston, you might run into a conservative or two. Yeah. So what got you into doing the research, you know, to determine, you know, what is it that conservatives value and how do they think and how do we communicate with them? Well, you know, I've started watching the political surroundings around me. And of course I was raised in a conservative family. Um, I'm, I am a breed that they call a Republican trial lawyer. Uh-huh. Uh, it was it was always uh, made me the loneliest person in the room. When I went to the trial lawyer organizations, they didn't uh, trust me because I was a Republican. And when I went to the Republican groups, they didn't trust me because I was a trial lawyer. And I I never understood why those two didn't didn't fit together because. Uh, there are many, many values that we hold as trial lawyers that fit right into the conservative values. Uh, certainly it was for me. So I, I just started trying to figure out how to bring those two worlds together. And uh, in the meantime, I started seeing some of the, the biggest verdicts in my state as it was turning more and more conservative and voting more Republican uh, were coming out of conservative venues. And so uh, 
it was worth a study to see why that was happening. It was counterintuitive to most trial lawyers' beliefs. Right. So what did you do to, to start studying this? Well, I just started putting together my thoughts and uh, reading some various writings. And, and one that really hit home for me was a book called uh, Born Fighting uh, by Jim Webb. Uh, Jim Webb, uh, at the time he wrote the book, was, was not a senator from Virginia, but he ran shortly after I read his book, and I knew that this guy was going to win just because I, I had seen how he knew how to talk to his people. Uh, Born Fighting is an interesting book written about the history of the Scots-Irish in America, and uh, it's a fascinating uh, history if you, have it, if you don't know about it. And so I guess more in fighting, reading that and putting together my desire to reach jurors and, and to uh, reach voters who wanted to vote for tort reform uh, when it was against their value system, uh, just sort of melded this all together for me. And so you said that book Born Fighting is about the Scots-Irish. What's the relationship between, you know, the Scots-Irish wave of immigration and the conservative uh, movement in America. Yeah, it's it's uh, to try to shorten the story down as much as I can. Uh, you know, uh, Jim Webb goes into the history of the Scots and how independent, fiercely independent they were, and how they always fought against the English crown and the privileged class and the nobles. And so uh, the, that was a, a spirit that was kind of encapsulated by the historical figure, William Wallace, which was portrayed in the movie Braveheart, uh, which many of us have seen. But the Scottish were so independent. And then back in the time Jamestown was, would have been colonized in America, England at the same time decided to try to colonize Northern Ireland. And so uh -huh. uh, the, the Scottish were the closest to Northern Ireland, so they went over there. And they stayed for, for about 100 years fighting with the English, but they were more really like the um, Irish. But they fought with the English against the Irish. Famous Battle of Boyne, you know, uh, William of Orange and King James. And, and uh, in any event, uh, what came out of that was that the Scots-Irish did not get the promises that they felt they were given by the English. And so they, they, out of a fit of anger, really, they all mass migrated into the mountains up in uh, Pennsylvania. And they, they migrated all the way down to the, to the Appalachian Mountains and over to the Ozarks like where I'm at. And these were people, when they were in, in Northern Ireland, they were really no longer Scots because they were second generation had never been in Scotland, but they weren't Irish either. So we tagged them with the term Scots-Irish. And basically what has happened with the Scots-Irish, they're, they're fiercely independent. They're balladeers. Uh, they lived in the mountains. They weren't quite like the, the English that lived on the coast. The English that lived on the coast like to have their government organized from the top down. They like to have their towns built on squares, but the Scots-Irish up in the mountains uh, lived more just kind of with their own families and fought like 
in the in the pioneer days they fought in the wilderness uh they they hid behind rocks and trees and fought that way and so the uh the scotch irish uh as time went on became the appalachian hill people the the mountain people and in the 1930s uh when prohibition hit they became your uh whiskey makers your moonshine makers and of course they started driving fast cars to get away from the revenueers and that sort of led into race car driving and nascar they were always uh balladeers that's kind of where country music comes from uh and and in the 30s, when times got so hard, they, they took what, you know, Steinbeck wrote about in The Grapes of Wrath, where they went to California to get jobs. Uh, if, if you look on the map in Bakersfield, California, that's full of what we call Arkies and Okies, Arkansans and Oklahomans that mass migrated out there, um, Bakersfield is a red circle on your political map. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they tend to be conservative. The um, in the 50s, uh, we got into what's called the Hillbilly Highway. Uh, they had to go north to get jobs. Uh, folks from West Virginia might have gone to Akron, Ohio, for the for the tire industry. Uh, folks in my area up in the in Ozark Hills, they went to uh, Chicago for the meat business. They went to Detroit to make cars. So, what Jim Webb is saying is that this this culture of the Scots-Irish sort of went out into our country and, and, and they were very assimilating. They would, uh, they didn't really care what nationality you were as long as you held their mores and beliefs. And right. I guess for me, I didn't know that I was like a fish swimming in water that didn't know he was wet. I, I just didn't realize when I read his book, I realized that's my people. That's what I was raised around. Uh, people that would uh, climb a pine tree backwards just to fight a buzzsaw, you know, uh, very <laughs> stubborn, uh, independent-minded people. And uh, and so I was fascinated with his thought that this culture has sort of infiltrated our country. If you like John Wayne movies and, and uh, NASCAR and country music, you might you might have been influenced by that culture. Yeah, and it would seem to me the Republican Party has moved, you know, over the last few decades from more of a, you know, a country club elite to more of the Scots-Irish, you know, kind of movement conservative or. Yeah, it's here's here's the way I've always diagrammed it. Uh, I really consider it like a Venn diagram. If you can picture a Venn diagram in your head uh, and you know how the circles in a Venn diagram kind of overlap. Uh, the, the top circle is the money circle. Uh, now, that's the physical conservative. Uh, the, but at the top of the circle are the, just the we want to make money uh, people. And they wouldn't care. They'll be Democrats. They'll be Republican. Whatever it puts them in position to make money. Now, right. the lower end of that circle, you just have physical conservatives who want us to spend wisely. You know, don't spend more than you make. And uh, they don't want to be overtaxed uh, and all that. But but the other circle in the Venn diagram uh, is your family value people. They hold true family value religious beliefs. And then over in the other circle I put over to the, to the left side are the libertarian values. 
and and those were values that the Scots Irish were steeped in to have uh, smaller government, more local control, uh, you know, lower taxes, Second Amendment rights. Uh, all of your Bill of Rights are important to them. Uh, so I, I, that's sort of what has happened in the top molecule, the money molecule. Uh, learn to talk to the family value people to keep them bound to the molecule. And, and of course, they had a natural affinity with the libertarians because they liked less government and regulation and and less taxes. It was a natural fit. But truly, the, the people in the family value circle and the libertarian circles are not motivated by money. They are motivated by their values, and uh, quite often uh, in the voting booth, they they may go vote against their pocketbook. Uh, whereas the people up in the top uh, circle, they never vote against their pocketbook. And you said, you know, there there are often common values between the values that that we need our jurors to have, or that we should have as trial lawyers, and the traditional conservative values. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? that? Sure. Uh, that's absolutely correct. If you if you walk into a, a courtroom with a client, you're telling that jury that your client's life uh, is special, was precious. Uh, and and you're telling that jury that somebody committed a, a wrong. There's a right and a wrong. Here's the rule. We call it rules of the road. Uh, and here's the wrong and the uh and it was committed. And we held, hold the jury that the wrongdoer should be responsible. Well, if, if you look into the heart and soul of the family value uh, circle Republican, they believe that life is sacred, that there's a moral right and wrong, and that people should be responsible. So really, uh, the family value conservative is just their value system just fits right into what you're trying to accomplish in a jury trial. And while jurors have gotten more hardened over the years and maybe not as much sympathy or empathy, uh, they still get angry. They get very angry at wrongdoers who, who do, who don't follow the rules, who don't follow the moral, uh, right and wrong of how to go, uh, through life, and so you can reach them. Uh, the the libertarian uh, has has a belief of local control. Well, there's there's no better example of local governmental control than a jury of your peers. It is the essence of small local control government for a jury to decide. Uh, they they believe in the right. In, laid out in the Bill of Rights. And one of them is the Seventh Amendment. And the Seventh Amendment is the right to a civil jury trial that our our founders of our country put into our Bill of Rights in our Constitution. How about the money conservatives? Any common values there? Now, you need to strike them whenever you can. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's uh, my... my my friend Ken Connor, uh, excellent trial lawyer, uh, he he followed this same train of thought. In fact, Ken was very kind in all of 
to allow me to sort of plagiarize him over the years and in many of my talks and discussions. And, and he sort of breaks them up into uh, blue, blue bloods and blue collars. Uh-huh. And uh, what he has essentially done with blue bloods and blue collars is he's taken my Venn diagram and kind of drawn a line uh, through the money molecule, which are blue bloods, and the family value and libertarians, which are blue collars. And uh, what 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 Ken would tell you is that that uh, try to get rid of the blue bloods whenever you can. That's the the apex employee that's uh, head of the, you know, maybe managing a team of people or maybe owns a company. Um, you, the apex employees are, they're physically conservative, but they're animated by economic self-interest. They're bottom line driven and they believe lawsuits increase the cost of doing business and lawsuits eat into corporate profits and that lawyers and lawsuits are bad. Right. Uh, but the but the blue collar conservative is is physically conservative, socially conservative, theologically conservative. But they're motivated by right and wrong. And the the blue collar conservative should be distinguished from the blue blood because the blue collar has the value system that really underlie the purpose of the jury system that we all work in. So if we have, you know, at least with the blue-collar conservatives, we have so many common values. Why is it you think some trial lawyers just can't reach them or turn them off? I, you know, it, I think it's a, a belief that uh, that they have been totally sold out to the idea that we're greedy trial lawyers and that they're just not that they're just against us. And uh, the, the truth of the matter is that what I've been trying to do is go around and talk to our uh, brothers and sisters in the trial bar that you you may maybe you bleed blue, maybe you're a Democrat, and this is how, but you can still reach uh, the the conservative juror, and you don't have to be afraid of them in your jury box, and you can certainly uh, reach out to them uh, in in the political battles on tort reform. Um, yeah. An example. Go ahead. Yeah, I think no. I don't want to interrupt you because I want to hear your example, and then I'll throw my comment in. Okay. Well, well, an example I was going to throw out in um, in Arkansas recently, uh, the the money molecule, the the big guys, put out a a tort reform amendment to our constitution, and they have to amend our constitution because in 1874, uh, our our founders of our state had had put into our constitution that the general assembly could not limit damages for personal injury or property damage and the history in that was that the the railroads were in power then and they were getting tired of being sued because their trains hit somebody's cow or hit somebody and so they started trying to pass laws to cap damages in jury trials and um our our Scots Irish forefathers uh, put it into our constitution that the General Assembly doesn't have the power to do that. So the wow. tort reformers in my state, and uh, back in 2017, put an amendment out to the voters to cap damages in non-economic cases uh, to make uh, every case, no matter what, be only worth five hundred thousand dollars in pain and suffering and mental anguish or what have you. 
And uh, ironically, one of the strongest groups against uh, against our that tort reform amendment was a a family value group known as Family Council here in Arkansas, and they started writing letters to the editor and doing tours around the state saying that life is priceless and you shouldn't put a cap on the value of life. And so it surprised many, many, many of, of our uh, trial lawyer brothers and sisters who vote Democrat that here was this person that they always thought was uh, against them in most things they believed in. But when it came to capping the value of life, uh, here they were, they had a friend. Uh, and it yeah. was a it was a happy surprise for them because it's a very politically influential group in our state at this time. And conversely, before Texas turned red, the first three rounds of tort reform were passed by Democratic legislatures. That's the ultimate irony. Just because someone takes your money and says the right things when they're talking to you asking for it doesn't mean that you're really your friend. That's right. That's right. Uh, The... the, um, Carl Rove did a great job of turning the the Democrat voting pickup truck driving Texan into a Republican voter. Uh, we had the same thing in 2003. They ran a tort reform measure in in Arkansas, and and you know this was the state that brought you Bill Clinton. Uh, it was a Democratic legislator legislature at that year, but but they voted in tort reform. Uh, fortunately, uh, they, they, even then, the family council group was against the capping of the damages. And so we've been able to hold it off thus far. You know, I think one challenge that some trial lawyers might have, and I just kind of like to get your thoughts on this, is when people live in a, in a bubble and everyone thinks like they do, everyone they talk to, they, there tends to be on the left this elitist attitude that, you know, these people are just too stupid to know what their own interests are. And, you know, if any of that bleeds into the way you talk to people, they're not going to like you. Yes, I think it's totally necessary that we we have to, as trial lawyers, learn their value system and understand what they're thinking and what they're doing. Um, uh, One of my best friends is a second generation union member. And but he is uh, against abortion. And so he goes into the voting booth and votes against his interests all the time. And if somebody didn't know him uh, and they, they kind of stereotype him and had an idea of him, they would be like, oh, I don't want him on my jury. But I can tell you, he'd be one of your best jurors. Um, so it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a way that we need to all learn to start thinking and, and the way that Ken Connor uh, works at it, he, he has a very neat Vordire, and he will ask them in Vordire, um, the jury, he'll ask them, who do you think should be responsible for bearing the cost that an innocent victim incurs as a result of wrongdoing? And he'll give them three choices. He'll say the victim, uh, society at large, or the wrongdoer. Uh, if the wrongdoer doesn't bear the cost, who will? Well, if you go back, should the should the innocent victim of a of a wrongdoing have to be the one that brunts the cost, uh, or should society at large? And Ken Connor might say 
you know, at hint, hint, taxpayers. You mean for the yeah. taxpayers to pay for it. And that fits into the libertarian value system. Or should the wrongdoer who caused the harm do it? And remember, the family value people believe that, you know, right and wrong, if you do wrong, you ought to be held accountable. Some people on the left feel that it ought to be society at large and not necessarily the wrongdoer. Well, I mean, that's the ultimate irony. Uh, I've, I've always been concerned that that if we are too too strong in our socialist viewpoint, uh, the socialist viewpoint can lead to a point where our entire world is just sort of like a workers' comp system, where you kind of get a one size fits all, and uh, give somebody a, a a little bit of a recovery, uh, and and go forward. Or maybe they, you've gotten the Medicare took care of you. Now that you're totally disabled, uh, why, why do we need to have this idea of punishment for wrongdoers? Yeah. Which uh, uh, I can I can tell you, uh, I, I've always had a belief that when something really bad happens, uh, there's really only four choices. Uh, when <clears throat> if a plant blows up in West Texas, uh, there's going to be this outcry from the from from the community and the state. Something's got to be done to prevent these kind of things. And if you don't have a healthy civil justice tort system, then the next move down and what's going to be a strong temptation is to create more regulations. And uh, I, I tell my conservative friends, you know, what do you, 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 you have uh, a rule that you have to be careful how far you swing your fists. We learned that in law school. And you can swing your fist, but if you hit somebody in the nose, you, you've committed a tort and you have to be taken care of it. Well, if you're wanting to run your business, don't you want the economic freedom to swing your fist? Just don't hit somebody in the nose. But when you get regulations, it's like, okay, you can only raise your hands up to 10 o'clock position, uh, you know, at one time of the day. And, you can, you know, it's very strict. So regulations becomes the next thing. I'm not saying I'm totally against regulations. I'm just saying that from a conservative viewpoint, regulations and overregulation is frowned upon. But when you don't have a torch system, there's just this cry and scream to create more regulations. If you look at it from the what I've seen on the trial lawyer point of view is when you get too many regulations, all that ends up happening is the industry lobbyists end up writing the regulations and they become useless anyway. Exactly. They start they start learning how to play the regulatory system. They start learning how to put influence on the government uh, uh, agency that is writing the regulations or they're enforcing the regulations. So there's there's nothing freer in the world than an independent jury that is is has somewhat outside of the the influence of political process. Uh, now there's a, there's another tendency, another third thing that I see uh, that's kind of trending in is to to criminalize negligence. And uh, you know, and in, in, uh, we already have negligent homicide on the books. Uh, you know, in law school we learned that you had to have a criminal intent to commit a crime, but now you can do it negligently. Uh, somebody tried to put in our statutes that didn't pass, but they tried to pass in Arkansas. If you drove too far and too long, like a truck driver, 
then uh, you had committed uh, uh, crime. So I, I tell my doctor friends all the time, uh, one of these days you're going to have a bad baby situation and you're going to look around, there's going to be a, a prosecutor having police arrest you and you're in handcuffs because of a, of a negligent homicide. And you're going to wonder what happened to that, that day when I just had to have some insurance and go to a civil jury trial and, and take care of it there. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the last thing of the four is, is vigilante justice. And one of the things that we've forgotten, we need to go back to the very basics of why tort law was created in the first place. And it was to give people an avenue, a place to go to deal with their conflicts or else they'll take care of them themselves. And yeah. we know that vigilante justice uh, could, could happen. I've, I've seen it happen in my own family where a domestic relations situation came up and people were literally uh, getting their guns out wanting to go deal with it. I mean, what they needed was two really good lawyers on both sides and a judicial system to go take care of that conflict. Um, my, my friend Matthew Hass, he's the executive director of uh, the Arkansas Trial Lawyers and uh, also a president of the National Association of Trial Lawyer Executives this year. But he used to joke with our, our legislators, it's like, why don't we reinstitute the duel in Arkansas? And they would be like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? That's crazy. He said, no, 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 you're, you're taking away the tort system where people can deal with conflicts. And we think when they start shooting at each other, we ought to get them back out on the sandbars on the river so they can shoot at each other and the innocent bystanders not be injured. So uh, it was a it was a funny joke, but it was sort of a tragic joke because there was so much truth in it that we've just forgotten what the tort system was for. And so I, I try to tell my conservative friends out of those four choices, three of them lead to totalitarianism type situations. More and more choking government regulations is to, can be totalitarianism. Uh, criminalizing your negligent behavior can lead to totalitarianism. Vigilante leads to martial law and it leads to totalitarianism. The, the thing that I think is part of the capitalistic system and leads to freedom is a healthy civil justice tort system. We just need to get educated. So, you know, I'm living in Texas and I've got advantage because I get, if I want to talk to conservatives, I can talk to family members, I can talk to neighbors. Um, you know, when I was a Boy Scout volunteer, most of the other dads were wonderful people, but, you know, they were very, very deep red conservatives. So, you know, I have the advantage of being able to just talk to people and get to know them. For people that are living like in a bubble, like in a, you know, everyone around them thinks the same, what's some advice you can give for how to learn to, to talk to and relate to people with a different value, a more conservative value system? Well, uh, first and foremost is, to go, if you got a jury trial you're about to try, you need to go focus it with a good focus group and with a person that understands uh, the different mindsets of the jurors. Uh, that would be an excellent way to do it. Uh, other than that, you know, come see me and we'll hang out like you in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you go to some family reunions and, and what have you. Uh, but, but I would think uh, focus groups, uh, there's there's some excellent uh, 
people out there to talk to, I would recommend Ken Connor. I'm certainly available to visit with anybody anytime. Um, um, there's a there's a, politically there's a guy out there named Andy Cochran that writes a used to write the Seventh Amendment blog. Uh, that's that's a good avenue for some information. Um, you know, but it, I guess for somebody like me to have grown up uh, around the the conservative culture and and seeing how loving and sweet they can be at the same time how hard they can be uh, has been invaluable in trying to have to go try cases in front of these folks. Yeah, I think it's important just to to people to work on themselves and learn to talk to someone and actually listen to them non-judgmentally uh, and realize that these are good people by and large uh, and just take the time to listen and get to know people and also you know, it might not be what they want to hear, but, you know, watch Fox News every now and then, you know. Yeah. Read read some conservative stuff because uh, you need to see that other people, you know, view the world differently. Another thing I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, they tell jurors not to look on social media, but I think they look us up. Any advice on what people should and shouldn't be putting on their social medias if they're going to try a case? Boy, that's, that's one that I live with every day. Um, I, I try to, uh, I know we have a real strong tendency to be very partisan in our social media posts. And I, I, I personally try real hard to, to remember that I'm trying to be a member of the trial bar that's trying to teach uh, a, a generally conservative state about the importance of the jury trial and the right to a jury trial. Uh, and so, uh, if, if you're too partisan, uh, you're, you're going to be pegged. They'll typecast you as bad as you typecast them. So that's something I'm, I'm very sensitive to. Uh, and the temptation is great to, uh, engage in social media. Um, you know, one-on-one -on -one when you're talking to a conservative, uh, you can do the Ken Connor approach of uh, asking them what they think is the fairest way of determining the amount of money that should be awarded for the damage that an innocent party suffers at the hands of a, of a wrongdoer. And he'll, he'll say to have groups of folks drawn from the community known as juries decide the amount to be awarded after having heard all of the evidence or to have the maximum amount awardable determined in advance by bureaucrats in your state capital before having heard any of the evidence. And it, if you can, it's easy to do one-on-one. -on -one. We can educate them one-on-one -on -one and get them to understand it. What's hard to do is in a, a mass media aspect. And that's the next challenge. Uh, and when we dealt with this tort reform issue in Arkansas, uh, uh, we, we, we created, a, an entity called Protect Our Families, Protect AR, Arkansas is AR, Protect Arkansas Families. And that was a, a, uh, group of, of people that tried to work with social media to get out an even handed message, uh, to, to on a bipartisan approach, but especially to reach the conservative voter. And, um, it, it was it was amazing consortium of having, like I said, the family value people coming out saying it's it, you shouldn't put a price on life. You shouldn't put a price tag on somebody's life. But 
the libertarian side came out and said, we don't want a government mandated price tag on life. Don't have the government mandate what a jury can do. Uh, so uh, they can be reached and it can be done through our social media and all, but it's going to take a thoughtful approach. And, and I know, I think just last night, I, I read a post by a stalwart member of the trial lawyer bar just ranting about probably very right from his standpoint that all the things that are wrong with with the current administration. But I thought, man, that's going to be something that a juror is going to read for your next trial. If you look at mine, you're going to see me and my kids. Sometimes when I'm being good and me exercising or where I'm going to go out to eat, but you're not going to see anything political because some juror of the 11 is going to get offended by anything on any part of the political spectrum. And, you know, I, I owe it to my clients not to alienate people because we're so tribal right now that we have common values. And if you can, you know, not close somebody off initially, I think we can reach each other. But when you, you know, once you become part of the bad team, you know, then it's just really hard to get someone to listen to you on either side. Right. And and I know the frustration there because, you know, we, we became trial lawyers because we wanted to help people and we wanted to make it a better world. And, and I know these people that are passionately putting out their their political views on social media want to change the world and want to influence people. And uh, I, I guess all I can say is judge your political environment and pick your best shots. And, and, and I don't, and so, I don't think anyone's views have ever been changed by the stuff that's written. I think people reinforce their own views and they get mad at each other. But I don't think there's any changing or true conversation going on in social media. I think it's uh, personally, I think it's well, counterproductive. There's a friend of mine wisely said uh, in this political battle we were in that it's it's not just the message, but sometimes it's the messenger. And so if you're trying to influence people, maybe you're not the best messenger for that. We need to start working together to to put together uh, organizations that can reach out and educate people, especially on the right to a jury trial. You know, um, the the Seventh Amendment was put into our Constitution, and we tell our conservatives in Arkansas that if you have a strong desire for your First Amendment rights, your freedom of speech, your freedom of religion, and you have a Second Amendment belief that you can't come take your guns, well, where do you enforce those rights? You better have a courthouse to go to. And we try to tell them if they can take away the right to a trial in the Seventh Amendment, they can take away the rest of them too. And so the Seventh Amendment was put in there on purpose. And it's a fascinating read to go look around the country and look in various states' constitutions. Uh, the Constitution in Arkansas says the right to a jury trial shall remain inviolate. The same in Mississippi. It was passed in 1817. Kentucky and Tennessee in 1792-1794. At the very time that our Bill of Rights and our Constitution was being ratified, our state constitutions were being written, putting in this right to a jury trial. And so you, you realize just how strong uh, that right is and how, and we've just forgotten, and we need to get back uh, to seeing why it's uh, so important. 
And the one that I really like is in the Virginia Bill of Rights. Uh, at Section 11, it says that in controversies respecting property and in suits between man and man, the ancient trial by jury is preferable to any other and ought to be held sacred. Now, not only is the wording significant, but the day it was passed, June 29th, 1776, five days before the Bill of Rights, I mean, before the Declaration of Independence was signed. So, uh, and, and one of the things that Jefferson complained about uh, in, the, in the Declaration of Rights was that the King of England was sometimes taking away the benefit of a trial by jury. And even that was mentioned in the, in, in the Declaration of Rights. So the trial by jury has just been something that we need to hold on to and we need to make uh, freedom-loving conservatives uh, realize that it is as important as any other right that they fight for. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. I want to go back to something you mentioned before, and I've experienced it, and I've heard it from a lot of other good lawyers and trial consultants, and that is the some of the biggest verdicts come from some of the most conservative jurors. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Their strong sense of right and wrong. Um, we, we had uh, one of our largest verdicts in the state of Arkansas was against a nursing home. And uh, the, the behavior was so bad from a corporate standpoint. Uh, it was an out-of-state company. Uh, one uh, administrator after another testified to the jury that they kept trying to call the corporate office to get more staffing and they could never get it. And then they showed what happened to this, this very unfortunate lady, uh, how badly she was mistreated and her uh, decubitus ulcers and her condition, how bad it was. And that it was the result of corporate cost cutting and cutting of staff to make more profit. When that jury came up, it was in a county that had never given probably more than a hundred grand in a car wreck case. But this rural county, they came in on board Dyer and the two defense lawyers, and I know them, they got in board Dyer and said, who, who hates lawyers? They all raised their hand. Uh, who hates jury trials? They all raised their hands. Who, who hates um, runaway juries? They all raised their hands. And they sat down in that rural community and they looked at each other and they went, well, we, we are going to do okay in this trial. And the jury came back with an $80 million verdict plus, 80 wow. plus million. Now that got remitted on appeal and it got down to 26 million, which was more where it should have been. But, but the irony was that was a extremely conservative area of the state and, and, and after having answered the board dire all those ways when they saw the corporate behavior and the 
the people locally who are working so hard to take care of those nursing home residents, begging for more help, uh, they punish them. It's a strong sense of right and wrong, and uh, that's that's essentially why we're there. You're a trial yeah. or you're new there because you thought it was so wrong. So as a practical matter, when we're trying our cases, what are some things we can do that, that allows us to reach those common values, that common ground with the conservative jurors to help get justice? Well, you know, the the people that I think have done the most in that area is like Rick Friedman on the rules of the road. I mean, he's, he's making us have to stop and really write down what was the rule and what rule was violated and explaining how to, how, how it was violated. Uh, and I, I think that's probably one of the best things we can do. And as simple as that sounds, it's hard to do. Uh, and it takes, uh, having a focus jury. Um, I, I had a case um, a couple of years ago where there had been some horseplay around the swimming pool and my client had gotten pushed in the pool and um, it wound up breaking his neck and he drowned. It's a sad, sad case. And But when the facts came to me early on, uh, he was the first one to push somebody in, my client. He was the jokester. He was the kidder. And uh, I said, well, we've got to go focus group this. So we went to a focus jury, and it went all day exactly like I thought. They sat around. They went, oh, he was the jokester. He was the kidder. He kind of started it all. Hmm. And then the the person running the focus group said, would it matter to you that the person that pushed him in was the homeowner? And oh my gosh, all of a sudden that they went mm, homeowner. No homeowners aren't supposed to act that way. And wow. the whole thing turned around. And so the next day we, we try we redid the focus jury and we did it solely from the start of, this guy was a homeowner, and we put together some of the rules that homeowners are supposed to follow, some that even the pool the pool manufacturers and sellers put out about what the, the rules are for a homeowner. And once they saw the rules, the focus jury the next day found overwhelmingly for us, and um, we, we got that case resolved for, for the maximum policy amount there That's soon awesome. after. But but smart lawyers were sitting around thinking about the case and nobody had come up with what was really the rule and what really went wrong that day. And that's, and what had happened was it was a homeowner that, that got involved into this, this uh, horseplay that is so prohibited by all the homeowner manuals that the pool manufacturers put out. So focus your jury and, and, and figure out what the rules are and because the, the rules of the road work because, uh, especially in these conservative areas, because that is how these people believe. On the other hand, what are things people need to be aware of, you know, buzzwords, behaviors, attitudes that are going to turn off or alienate the conservative jurors? Wow. Um, you know, if you focus too much on just trying to make them feel sorry for them because it's a horrific injury, um, that can actually work against you. Uh -huh. um, 
like I said, I don't, I don't think juries are as sympathetic or empathetic as they were when I started uh, back in the 80s and uh, early 90s. Uh, they're hardened now. They, they've seen so, they've been exposed to so much through our media and everything else um, that just, just mere trying to appeal to sympathy is not going to carry the day. You've, you've got to find that, that rule and that why that wrongdoer should be held responsible. Absolutely. So, Paul, uh, you know, I've heard you talk a lot. There was an article uh, quite a while back, back in 2004, that kind of, I think, started you down the road of, you know, we're approaching some of these things the wrong way and we're looking at it from the wrong perspective. We want to talk to, you know, conservative or value-driven people. Can you tell us about that? That's that's right, uh, Michael. Back in, uh, as you know, in Texas in 2003, uh, uh, tort reform was passed and they capped medical malpractice cases at $250,000 for non-economic damages. And uh, a year later, uh, I'm reading the Wall Street Journal, and the front page is about a a mal as malpractice caps spread, lawyers turn away some cases. That was the headline, and it was a picture on the front page of the Wall Street Journal of a of a lady who was a stay at home mother, and she she had no lost income, she had no lost wages, she had no actual damages, no chalkboard damages. She was just somebody's precious mom, and no lawyer in Texas could take her case. They couldn't afford to spend the money it takes to hire experts to bring a medical malpractice case to where their only ability to recover was going to be the $250,000 in non-economic damages that she had. And it was interesting to me that the emphasis in the article was how the National Organization of Women said this shows that the law is bad for women and what have you. And what dawned on me was that they have really missed their audience. The Texas voter that got uh, brainwashed into voting for these tort reform caps is really the people that have the most at loss because they have stay-at-home moms in their families. It's either their, their wife or their mom or their sister. And and to realize that stay-at-home moms have no value when there's a non-economic damage cap. What makes uh, one lady go out and start a career and have an economic loss and a history of wages as opposed to a stay-at-home mom? And so um, we started emphasizing that in our Arkansas tort reform battles that stay-at-home moms were really devalued. And it was it was quite a groundswell of, of people coming out of the woodwork saying they were not for damage caps that made stay-at-home moms have less value. Uh, to the point where the tort reformers in their counter rhetoric started trying to show that an economist could go out and put a value on some of the things that a stay-at-home mom did. What would it cost <laughs> to hire a housekeeper and all that? They were trying to overcome that price tag on a stay-at-home mom's life. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that's an important concept to to get out there for everybody, uh, but especially for our stay-at-home uh, uh, moms and who tend to come from our family value uh, circle. 
also the you know words matter and i think one of the things i've heard you say before is you know we've made a mistake by using the other side's term of quote unquote non-economic damages that's right i you know I don't remember using the term non-economic damages back in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, we talked about compensatory damages. And then in the context of compensatory damages, we might talk about, oh, if you could chalkboard the medical and all that. But we didn't call them actual damages versus non-economic damages. That's the tort reform rhetoric. Let's talk about actual damages. The tort reformers kept telling the public in our state, that we're not capping actual damages. We're only capping non-economic damages. And I, I, I got to thinking about that, and I, I started talking to my conservative friends who are non-lawyers, and I would, I would say, well, just what are non-economic damages? Let me, let me explain um, how they are real. Uh, let's take a, a college-educated white-collar worker that has a desk job, and they get run over by a drunk driver, and, he, and in the wreck, it cuts off both their legs. And so they've lost their legs, and they got to go get treated, and for about $30,000, uh, the medical people can heal the stumps that this person's left with. And for about four months of rehab, they can build up their strength and get the skill to be able to get in and out of a wheelchair. So they've lost 30,000 medical and about four months of lost wages, but they, they get up in that wheelchair and roll it right back under their desk where they had their white collar job and they work there for the next 30 years. And I would ask my conservative friends, what is more real to this person? The $30,000 that it took for the medical bills the four months of lost wages and the rehab costs are living without legs for the next 30 years. We have got to start educating the public that non-economic damages are real, maybe more real than the economic damages. Uh, we've kind of gotten lulled into it. The public kind of thinks of uh, things they see on TV where people fake an injury and try to get money out of somebody and it's it's the non-economic damages they try to uh that the public may think they're trying to fake but when you put it in that sense um i i once had a client from texarkana texas who um, looked in the yellow pages and found an abortion doctor in little rock she came up to little rock and had an abortion and she was his 29th patient of the day wow. of 30. He had 30 patients. She was number 29. He was doing them about every 10 or 15 minutes. Now, if if you're a, a reproductive rights person, you're like, sure, he had to do 30 of them because you've narrowed it down to where only fewer doctors are doing them. But nevertheless, uh, he was probably tired. He perforated her, her uterus and perforated her colon. And then she went back to Texarkana, Texas. Now, the, the problem was that, that those two things are known risks of the procedure. But what wasn't a known risk was she's now home. She's embarrassed. She doesn't want to call her family doctor. She doesn't feel well. And so she's calling his clinic, and he didn't answer the call. He didn't return the call. Days went by. 
she finally, uh, the ambulance had to take her, and she was in the ICU, and uh, they had to pack her abdomen with ice. She spiked 104 fevers for days. In any event, they got the fever back down, and they saved her, but she was now sterile for life. And so I tell my conservative family value uh, pro-life friends, uh, okay, what's more real? The, the week's worth of medical wages, medical bills that she incurred in the ICU or um, the uh, lost wages for a week are being sterile for the rest of her life because the yeah. doctor didn't have a protocol to return the calls and take care of her. So what's more real? I can guarantee you what was more real to her was being sterilized the rest of her life, non-economic damages. So we've got, we've got to come up with ways. And partly why I have these calls is I know I'm talking to the best trial lawyers in the country and the most creative minds in the country. And I want to get smarter people than me thinking about how we can address this and come up with better ways of explaining non-economic damages. And they may be even a better way of a better term to, so that we can start incorporating our own terms and how to talk about it. Absolutely. Well, I think this stuff's really important. Uh, and, you know, it is a, if not a majority of the country, a huge percentage of the population. And, you know, there are going to be conservatives, I think, on every jury. And, uh, and I really appreciate all the work you're doing on, on helping us uh, communicate uh, on behalf of our clients with the people that are actually serving on juries. You bet. I, 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 anything I can do, and of course, uh, 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 shameless uh, advertisement is, uh, there is a video for me that I've created for trial guides on how to talk to conservatives. Um, it's a DVD. I'd like to someday get it where people could just click on it and watch it. Uh, but there is a DVD out there um, Trial Guys has approached Ken Connor and I to try to write a book together, so we may do that. Uh, hopefully, to get the word out. But but uh, this isn't this isn't uh, something that just needs to be me talking about. It needs to be everybody. And uh, Michael, I think uh, you have this great format uh, to to get the word out. I appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you. And, and by the way, I have the DVD, and I do encourage other people to buy it. It is it is good and worth watching. Uh, yeah, a friend of mine said he had to pull his DVD out of the closet to watch it, but uh, <laughs> he still, still was able to see it. Yeah, well, I got I got kids in Disney movies, so I still have a DVD player at home. So. Great. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, it's great talking to you, Paul. I look forward to seeing you at the next convention. Same here. Thank you, Michael. Okay. Thank you for joining us today on Prowl Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show with Paul Bird. I appreciate your support of the show and love hearing from you, so please continue contacting us via email at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Our Table Talk episodes have become a great way to discuss topics our listeners want to hear more about, so please email us with your feedback, and be sure to join our private Facebook group, Trial Lawyer Nation's Insider Circle. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app. 
so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.